Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. It is 1 Samuel chapter 14, where my Bible is open to. And I'll make it easy on you this morning. If you'll turn to 1 Samuel chapter 14, just stay right there for the entirety of the lesson. Just going to work exclusively in this Old Testament text, make some applications from what I believe to be just one of the great and one of the just often overlooked stories that we find recorded for us in the pages of the Old Testament. It is great to see everybody this beautiful Lord's Day morning. Boy, it just starts to really feel like spring, especially when you're driving down the road and you start to see some of the buds blooming there on the trees. Uh, doesn't seem like it should be this time of the year already, but it is. And we thank God for that, for the beauty of His creation and just for His goodness and His kindness to us and for just the privilege to be able to be together as His people and people who are pursuing and seeking after His things to worship Him here on the first day of the week. I do want to give just a quick preview of what's on tap for tonight because I've already had somebody ask me about the title of that sermon. Some folks saw the title on the sign. Josh, what is this about genocidal maniacs? What is that all about? Well, it's a sermon about God. And I'll just go ahead and tell you, it's a sermon that I think just a lot of folks will have a lot of trouble with. There is something about the character of God that just seems to bother a lot of people. There are some things that we read about God in the Scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, that really bothers people about the Lord and about whether or not a loving and compassionate and kind God could really act in this way. And so this evening, I hope you've already got plans, but if you don't, I want to encourage you to be back at 6 o'clock because we'll talk about what I think is just one of the really more difficult and prickly moral issues uh, that we confront day by day. And especially, uh, you may have even been confronted about this question before. So tonight we'll address that. We'll address what I think is sometimes a big elephant in the room when we're studying through the Bible. Uh, be back tonight at 6 for that. But how about this morning we talk about 1 Samuel 14. Let's read together in 1 Samuel chapter 14. I want to begin just by reading verse number 1. In 1 Samuel 14 verse 1. The Bible says that one day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. One of my favorite sports movies of all time is the 1986 film Hoosiers which tells the story of a small high school basketball team in Hickory, Indiana. It's actually loosely based on a true story. This team that comes from relative obscurity to end up winning the state championship. One of the pivotal scenes in that movie is during the semifinal game, the semifinal game to the state championship, when the least experienced, And the least talented player on the team, a little short guy by the name of Ollie, he is called upon to get off the bench and to get in the game. Ollie is barely five feet tall. He's skinny. He's pale. He's timid. And the fact of the matter is, he's just not very good. He's just on the team because they need more bodies on the team. But the coach, he's already used all of his reserves and a critical player in the starters. He just fouled out. And so it's down to the final minutes. And they need somebody on the floor. Ollie has to get in the game. And so the coach says, Ollie, you're in. And Ollie just sits there. 
Just sits there so quiet, staring down at the hardwood floor. Maybe just kind of hoping he didn't hear what he heard from the coach. Maybe hoping the coach wasn't real serious. Maybe he'll change his mind. But the coach comes even closer to him, gets down in his face, and he says, Ollie, we need you. We need you, Ollie. Of course, if you've seen the movie, you know what happens next. Ollie, he does get up. He gets off the bench, checks into the game, and wouldn't you know it, he ends up scoring the winning basket, sending his team to the championship. That scene's always stuck out to me. Coach coming and saying, Ollie, get in the game. Get off the bench, Ollie. You've sat there long enough. I know that that's where you feel most comfortable. I know that you maybe feel a little bit inadequate here. I know that you're much more comfortable just being a spectator and watching everybody else. But the time has come for you to get off the bench and get in the game. If you're going to be a part of this team, you're going to have to stop riding the pine. It is my belief that within the Lord's church, there are some folks who could use a little motivational speech just like the coach gave to Ali in that movie. I believe that there are people who are on the church team, if you will, who could use the kind of pep rally speech that causes them to get up and to get busy and to be involved in the work of the Lord. And there's a number of reasons as to why they want to stay on the bench. Maybe it is they're there because, well, because they feel inadequate. They just don't feel like they have talents that could be put to use in some way. Maybe it's just ignorance. Maybe they just don't even know what to do or how to even get started. Maybe it's even just, worst of all, maybe it's just indifference. They just don't even care to even be involved. But I am convinced that they need to be told to get off the bench. And I'll just go ahead and confess to you. On more than one occasion throughout my Christian life, I have been so tempted to go to a brother in Christ or to even go to a sister in Christ and grab them by the shirt collar, shake them a little bit, scream in their face and shout, Get Off the bench. You're not doing anything. You're not helping here. You're not being of assistance in the work of the Lord. Your brothers and your sisters, they're the ones doing all the work. They're the ones doing all the visiting. They're doing all the giving. They're doing it all. You're just watching. Get up. Get off the bench. I've been so tempted to do that. But of course, I've I've restrained myself from doing that. You and I know that no amount of screaming and no amount of hollering is going to do any good. You can't scream anybody into getting them to do what is right. But you know what you can do and what I intend to do this morning? You can talk. And you can reason from the Word of God. And that's exactly what I want to do from 1 Samuel the 14th chapter. I want us this morning to look at the story of a young man by the name of Jonathan who is identified there in verse number 1 as the son of Saul, who was the king. And I want us to see what happens when we do what Jonathan did, and that is get off the bench. And I'm really just not making any tricks this morning. Because all I want to do, if you are sitting on the bench, I want to convince and compel you to get off the bench. As the children of God, we must come to the place where we understand that we are called to serve. And that means we must, emphasis must, get in the game. We must get off the bench. 
And if you're sitting on the bench this morning, I hope that by the end of this lesson, you will be off the bench. If, however, you are amongst those who feel like, well, I'm kind of already in the game. I'm involved. I'm, I'm involved in this way and in that way. And I'm doing all these various things for the Lord. Great. I'm happy for that. And I'm so thankful for you. And I'm appreciative of what you're doing. But maybe I can say some things that this morning that will encourage you to continue in that. And to maybe be even more involved than you already are. In fact, sometimes what happens many, in many cases is we kind of go through peaks and valleys in our walk with God. You ever kind of felt that happen? You know, there's moments where we just feel like, man, I'm just really gung-ho about this, just banging it out for the Lord, and then ah, a little time goes by and we're kind of, kind of in one of those valleys, and I just kind of want to rest on my laurels a little bit. We kind of just take a break a little bit. In fact, this happens, I think, most predominantly in growing churches and in bigger churches. In a growing church, it's easy for folks to say, well, hey, we got these new folks coming in. Let's let, let, let them do some stuff, and I'll just kind of... Kind of just ease off a little bit. Or maybe in a big church, the, the temptation sometimes is, is to just kind of fade into the background. Just kind of blend in with the scenery and the potted plants and everything. And maybe just folks won't even notice that I'm not doing anything. This morning I want to try to help all of us to stay motivated, to be involved in the work of the Lord wherever you are. I hope that you will come to realize that the bench... It's not where you need to be, and it's not where you want to be. And I want to do that from 1 Samuel chapter 14. Now, maybe just kind of setting up 1 Samuel chapter 14 a little bit might help us before we start reading here. Here's what you just need to know. Let me give you just the Cliff Notes version. The Philistine army has the Israelites trapped in a corner. The Philistines are those fierce, war-mongering people who have tens of thousands of mighty soldiers who've been trained for battle. And they are armed with their chariots and their swords and their spears, things that the Israelites did not have. They seem to just have every advantage in every possible way. They don't have one thing that the Israelites do. They don't have God. They don't have the God of heaven on their side. And even though it seems as if the Israelites have forgotten that fact by and large, there's still at least one person amongst the Israelites who has not forgotten that God is on their side. And that is this young man that we met in verse 1, this man named Jonathan. Look at what the Bible says about Jonathan in these first five verses. Read verse 1 again. One day Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Well, why didn't he tell his father? Well, verse 2. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah under the pomegranate tree at Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. And within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, there was a rocky crag, or I like one translation just says, sharp rocks on the one side and sharp rocks on the other side. The name of the one was Bozes, and the name of the other was Sinna. The one crag rose on the north in front of Michmash, and the other on the south in front of Geba. Well, what exactly is happening here in these verses? Well, in verse 2, Saul and his men, they're hiding out. Saul is, he's the commander-in-chief. He is the leader here, and he is with his men in hiding. They are in the uttermost part of some obscure town wallowing there under the pomegranate tree. They are in the shade doing nothing. 
While the Philistines are embarking on just a path of carnage and rage, drawing closer and closer, at this critical moment, when the Israelite nation desperately needed a leader, they needed somebody to step forward and to act and to do something, Saul and his men, they are content to sit on the sidelines doing nothing. They are, they are on the bench. In fact, they are so aloof as to what is exactly going on, they don't even notice that Jonathan has got up and gone out to do something on his own. And I think that's a great place to make this first point. To point out that getting off the bench, it'll take a great deal of courage. I think about Jonathan. I try to put myself in his shoes. Jonathan looked at this situation here and he said, Hey, i got two choices here as I see it. I can either sit here with my dad and all of his men and just be cowardly, and ultimately get killed? Or I can muster up some courage, and I can get out there and do something. And I think about that. There's no doubt in my mind that would have taken a tremendous amount of courage on Jonathan's part. In fact, for several different reasons. Number one, Jonathan is a young man. That young people, you ought to take real comfort and some real encouragement from this story. Jonathan does have some military experience under his belt. Chapter 13 tells us about that. But he is not exactly what we would consider a grizzled old veteran of war. No, most commentators place Jonathan's age as being maybe in his early 20s. And so this would be a huge undertaking, a huge risk for a man as young as he was. Secondly, sneaking away without the permission of the commanding general, which was the king, which was his dad, that would have been an act of insubordination. And so Jonathan is also risking being punished by breaking rank. And then thirdly, did you notice there in verses 4 and 5 about the journey itself? Some of those details there might not really stand out to us. But the journey that's described there is treacherous. To get into the Philistine camp was a dangerous trip. Verses 4 and 5 describes this steep and rocky and mountainous region that would have included all kinds of, of, of cliffs and ravines and drop-offs along the way would have made travel very, very difficult to get there. You had all of those components together and what do you got? Jonathan is embarking on a very risky mission. He is doing something that none of Saul's best and even more experienced men are willing to do or had the courage to do. He is getting off the bench... Because he sees a job that needs to be done. And I'm here to say this morning, brother, I'm here to say this morning, sister, that there is lots of work in the Lord's church that needs to be done. And it's not going to get done if you're sitting on the bench and it's not going to get done if you don't muster up some courage. The Lord does ask us to do some things that are difficult, some things that are risky. Think about it. There's lots of lost people in the world. Actually, let's just hone that in. There's lots of lost people in this community, in our neighborhoods, even lost people in our families. And they need to be talked to about the gospel. They need to be exposed to the light of Jesus Christ. You know what? That'll take some courage on your part, won't it? Especially in the climate in which we live today, it is not always easy to talk to people about the Bible to talk to them about moral issues, to talk to them about the Lord, that can be very risky stuff. Or think about this, there's lots of sin in this world. 
We see it on the television. It pops up on our computer screens. We are confronted with it face to face daily. That sin needs to be rebuked. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about don't be involved in the unfruitful works of darkness. Rather expose those things. You know what? That takes courage. That takes courage to speak out against sin. And to say boldly, this is what the Bible says about that. That'll take a lot of courage. Maybe just, let's, let's hone in even more closely thinking about within this local church, there is preaching and there is teaching that needs to be done. Regularly, when we come together, there's teaching and preaching that's going to take place. That isn't getting done on its own. That takes people. That takes people who have some courage to do that. Somebody looks at the idea of teaching a Bible class and I, Oh, 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 I couldn't do that. It just scares me to death going down there and teaching all them little ankle biters downstairs doing that for a whole quarter or standing up in front of the auditorium teaching all these scary adults up here. Oh, I just can't do that. Well, you know what? There's some truth to that. That can be a scary thing. It can be a scary thing to have to put a lesson together and try to preach to a group of people. But that's why we need courage, isn't it? You need courage to do that. That's God's work and it's got to be done. Or you know what? There's always going to be folks who are who are erring. Or folks who are maybe just kind of kind of wishy-washy in their service to the Lord. There's people who are not here this morning who should be here. I'm not talking about the folks that we mentioned that were on the sick list. Or folks that are traveling. Folks we, we know where they're at and we know what's going on. No, there's some, I'm looking around, I see some empty holes here. Of folks who, they're just not here. No reason, no excuse, no you know legitimate reason for them not to be here. What do we say to those folks? What are we going to say to some brother or some sister when we see them in sin? Going to need, going to need to speak out. Going to need to be that donkey. Talked about that just a couple of weeks ago. That'll take courage, won't it? Not always easy to confront somebody about sin or about uh, spiritual weakness. You know, the list of examples just could go on and on and on. The truth is, Christian duty requires within us some level of courage. There's going to be some risks we'll have to take to step out of our comfort zone, to step out of our complacency so that we can get busy in the vineyard of the Lord. And I want you to notice as we think about Jonathan here in 1 Samuel chapter 14, Jonathan did not wait around for somebody to poke him or to prod him or coerce him into getting busy doing something. Jonathan saw something that needed to get done and he set about the task of doing it. And that's what the Lord's church needs. That's what we need more of right here at Lakeside. We need more men and more women with, what's the word I'm looking for? Initiative. We need people who have initiative. And it seems to me that in a lot of congregations of God's people, especially in a congregation where there's maybe good leadership, the tendency is to just kind of, just kind of rest over here on the sidelines. Just wait until you get the call. Wait until everybody else has taken their turn and, well, well, then I'll step up and do something when all the more qualified people have done their deeds. The example of Jonathan just absolutely squashes that notion. Jonathan shows us that when there's work that needs to be done, I need to do it. Even if it is hard work. Even if it is risky and dangerous work. I need to get off the bench and do it. I'm reminded of a little formula. You've probably heard this at some point in your life. I remember a good old sister long ago. She instilled this within my mind, and it's just, this is not going away anytime soon. She used to say the formula, opportunity plus ability equals responsibility. And that's exactly right. When we have opportunities, 
And when we have a measure of ability, we are responsible to do that. And the Lord's going to hold us accountable for that. We need to get off the bench. You know what else we know about getting off the bench from 1 Samuel chapter 14? Getting off the bench, Jonathan shows us, is easier when you have the help of a fellow worker. That's exactly what we see. Look in the very next couple of verses. Verse 6. Verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor. We don't even know this guy's name. But he said to him, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. You know, we can't talk this morning about the great faith of Jonathan without also talking about the great faith of his armor bearer. Here is a guy who is risking just as much, if not more, than Jonathan by getting off the bench and accompanying, accompanying Jonathan on this extraordinary mission. This young man was willing to put his own life on the line in order to stand by his courageous prince. And don't you love that statement there in verse 7? Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. When's the last time a friend said that to you? Or when's the last time you were able to say those very same kinds of words to somebody else? That I'm with you. Hey, you got a plan or something to do? I'm with you, heart and soul. I am convinced that that must have encouraged Jonathan tremendously to realize that, hey, I'm not alone here. He believes, this guy believes that we can do this. I think we can do this. He thinks we can do this. All right, come on, let's go. Let's do this. But for as much as Jonathan was encouraged by the armor bearer, I imagine, I imagine it would have been equally discouraging if the armor bearer had said, nah, nah, I'm not going with you, John. We're not doing that. I really didn't have plans to die today, so, uh, I just don't think we're going to go do this. This harebrained, you know, cockeyed idea that you've got going off and fighting against the Philistines. You know what? You just kind of on your own. I'm going to go over here and sit with your dad and all the other men. I wonder if, I wonder if maybe this story would have turned out much differently if the armor bearer had had that attitude. I wonder if maybe Jonathan would have just tucked his own tail and he would have retreated as well if the armor bearer hadn't been by his side. In fact, I think of a lot of Bible stories that would have probably turned out very, very differently if it weren't for the faith and the courage of a good friend. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? We know that story. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego being thrown into the fiery furnace. What if, what if it was just the story of Shadrach? Shadrach and the fiery furnace. Would Shadrach alone by himself, would he have had the courage to stand up to Nebuchadnezzar and say, no, I'm not bowing down to your golden image? Would he? I don't know. Maybe. I'd like to hope that he would. But I can tell you this conclusively. I am confident in saying that it was easier for Shadrach to do the right thing when he knew that two of his friends were right there by his side, standing firm, doing what was right as well. And I'm here to say this morning that Christian duty, it is easier, not easy, but easier whenever we have the help of fellow laborers. You know, I realize, I realize that setting up a Bible study with somebody, well, that can be a scary thing. Maybe you've got a coworker, you've got a family member or a friend who 
you're pretty sure they'd be open to studying the Bible with you sometime, but you're just kind of you're just really kind of scared at the thought of that sitting down with somebody across the table from them and trying to explain to them the gospel and going through and help them understand some things. That can be a very daunting task. But you know what? What if you had a partner? What if another brother or another sister came alongside you and assisted in that work? What if somebody who does have some experience in that said, hey, let's, let's tag team that. Let's work together in that opportunity. Not so scary anymore, is it? Think about all the other areas in which we can rely upon one another. Think about that teaching thing, talking about teaching a class. If somebody says, you know what, I... I see the need for teachers and I know that I need to grow. I need to be at a point in my own spiritual development where I can be capable of teaching others, thinking about teaching some of these kids' classes. And you know what? I'm frightened to death of going down there and being in a room of a, of a half dozen or in, in my class. I've got a whole dozen of kids in there. I'm kind of frightened at the prospect of that, but maybe I could come in with someone else. You know, Stacy, I noticed you're, you're on this quarter. You're, you're teaching some of those, those small kids. I, I'm interested in that, but can I maybe come along with you? Or maybe even better yet, maybe I'll sign up for the next quarter and would you come along with me and I can learn from you and you can guide me through that and we can help one another. You go and ask Stacy if, if she'd be willing to tag team with you. I know Stacy. She's going to say, yes, I am with you heart and soul. And I am convinced, as I look around this room, I am just convinced that we are in the midst of a group of people. Where if you'd go just pick anybody out and say, hey, would you come do this with me? You know, there's some folks I know that need to be visited. We've got some shut-in folks. Got some elderly folks, some widowed folks, some sick folks. And I want to do that. I want to be more involved in that. But I'm always kind of timid about that. And feel like I'm not going to be able to really carry on a conversation. But would you go with me? Could we do that together? I'd like to believe that if you ask anybody in this room, will you, that you're going to get a resounding yes. I'd like to believe that that's just so. Here, People are going to say, yes, I am with you heart and soul. You know, the truth of the matter is, God has given us this wonderful family, not just so that we could, you know, meet up on Sundays and we update one another as to the status of all of our individual efforts, but instead He gave us this family so that we could help each other in carrying out His work. We're going to rely upon one another. And we see that all throughout the Bible. Think about Jesus. He got this group of men, these apostles. And when it came time to send those men out, how did He send them out? He sent them out in pairs. Jesus saw that there was some strength in numbers. Or think about how Paul, we just got studying in the book, got studying the book of Colossians there. The end of the book of Colossians, Paul just names all these guys. Who were all these people? They were his fellow laborers. People who were companions in the work of the Lord. Think of the great tandems in the Bible. Paul and Barnabas, Aquila and Priscilla. If you examine your life and you realize, you know what, I'm pretty much sitting on the bench spiritually. Then can I encourage you today to grab somebody. Grab me. I'm giving you an invitation to grab me and say, I need some help here. I'm looking to be more involved. I want to put my talents to use. I want to serve the Lord in a better way. Will you help me? Will you be along with me? I'm going to give you a big yes. I'm going to say, I am with you, heart and soul. But I want you to notice as we continue on 1 Samuel 14. Notice what else happens when you get off the bench. After Jonathan and his armor bearer, after they have... They've made this pact that they're going to proceed toward the garrison of the Philistines. Read with me beginning in verse 8 now. Then Jonathan said, Behold, 
We will cross over to the men and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place. We will not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up. For the Lord has given them into our hand. And this shall be the sign to us. And so, both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, look, Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they've hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer. And they said, come up to us and we'll show you a thing. Jonathan said to the armor bearer, come up after me. For the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. You know what these verses demonstrate for us? They demonstrate for us the importance that if you're going to get off the bench, that that's going to require discerning the will of God. You know, Jonathan has, without a doubt, a great idea. Sneaking up on the Philistines, that's a great idea, at least in theory. But in practice, well, it might not turn out to be such a great idea. In fact, it may be entirely the wrong idea. It may be completely contrary to what God wants Jonathan to do. And that's exactly why Jonathan is wise enough to recognize, hey, we need to kind of just perform a test here. We need to figure out if this really is God's will for us. If it is, then we're doing it. There's no backing out. But if it's not God's will, then we're going to scrap the whole thing. We're going to have to figure something else out. And I want us to understand that that's a really important point here. How important that is for all of us. That if we are going to get off the bench, if we are going to do God's work, we're going to need to figure out what God's will is before we take any kind of action. And no, I realize we don't have the the benefit that Jonathan did of some kind of divine intervention where God's going to you know thunder His voice from heaven or God's going to reveal Himself in some kind of miraculous way so that we can know whether we're doing the right thing. You know, hey... God, if you want me to invite my neighbor to come to services next week, then, you know, make this bush just burst into flames. God's not going to do that. But what do we have for discerning the will of God? Well, we have something Jonathan didn't have. We have the complete, revealed Word of God. We've got the Scriptures. And it is that wonderful book that all of us, I hope, own a copy of and we have access to at any time. And it tells us exactly what God expects His people to do. Now, sometimes what God wants His people to do, it's very clear and it is very specific and pointed. I think about, for example, James 1.27. Visit orphans and widows in their affliction. That is very, very direct. Other times, though, God's commands and God's will, it's, it's very broad and He speaks in very general terms, such as do good unto all men, Galatians 6, verse 10. And of course... There's just all kinds of different commands and all kinds of different ways in which God reveals His will to us all across that broad spectrum. But the point is, God has spoken. And He has revealed to us what He wants us to know and what He wants us to do. And it is then up to us to get in the Word of God so that we can then know the will of God and execute it. We need to have the kind of faith that's going to rely on God's Word. And I bring this point up because every now and then what will happen is some zealous and very eager and, and, and I believe very good-hearted person will jump up and they'll say, hey, we need to do this. We need to get, we need to get started with this. And they've got all the zeal and all the fire and all the energy in the world. And you, you admire that. And you're happy, you're happy that they're courageous in that way. But before you know it, what happens is sometimes is that zeal and that eagerness it can get out of control. 
And before you know it, what happens is, is you got the church instituting all kinds of ministries and programs and all kinds of things that God has never authorized. And why? All because somebody was zealous and they were on fire and said, we got to do this. And they didn't consult God's Word. Think about what Paul says in the beginning of Romans chapter 10. It is zeal without knowledge. We don't want to be that. We want the zeal. We want it to be zeal according to knowledge. We want to have the kind of faith that will put our trust totally and completely in God and in the Word in which He has revealed. It's not about what I think is best. It's not about what somebody else thinks is a good idea. It's about what God says He wants. And the neat thing about all of that is whenever I just trust the Lord and trust His Word enough to just do what He says, I'll be successful. The Lord's church will be successful. In fact, look at verse 13, that Jonathan was successful. Verse 13, Jonathan, we've discerned the will of God. We know that this is what God wants. Verse 13 now. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and his feet and his armor bearer after him. And they, the Philistines, they fell before Jonathan. And his armor bearer killed them after him. And that first strike which Jonathan and his armor bearer made killed about 20 men within, as it were, half a furrow lengths and an acre of land. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. And the garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked and it became a very great panic. Jonathan's courage, Jonathan's trust in God, as well as the courage and the trust of his armor bearer, it led to the mighty Philistines being sent into just this terrible panic. Not to mention 20 of those big, strong, mighty Philistines, they all fall down with just one single blow. Jonathan must have looked at that and saw, this is working. It really is working. We've trusted in the Lord, had the courage to stand up and do what needed to be done, and it's working. We're seeing results. Jonathan got off the bench and things started to happen. And one of the really great things that happens when you get off the bench, and we'll see evidence of it here in the next couple of verses, is that when you get off the bench, is that it usually ends up motivating other people to do the exact same thing. Let's finish up the story now. Verse 16. That's what happens next. Then the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah of Benjamin, they looked. They saw what Jonathan the armor bearer had done. And behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who is gone from us. When they had counted, behold, Jonathan and his armor bearer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult in the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and they went into battle. And behold, every Philistine sword was against his fellow and there was a very great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time and who had gone up with him into the camp, even they also, these traitors, even they also turned to be with the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves, the cowards in the hill country of Ephraim, when they heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them into the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day. and The battle pressed beyond Beth Haven. Just do the math there. Jonathan's dad, all of his cowardly soldiers, even all of those Israelite traitors, and all the ones who had went and hid themselves into the caves and any place they could find to hide themselves, even they, when they heard of Jonathan's courage, they got off the bench. They said, we got to get into the game too. They got involved in the vitally important work that needed to be done here. 
No more sitting around and resting on our laurels. It's time to get up and it's time for us to give our best. What Jonathan did was Jonathan, Jonathan set the pace. And what I'm saying to you this morning is that if we will display the same kind of courage that Jonathan did within the Lord's church, doing God's work in His kingdom, if we will get off the bench, if we will get busy discerning God's will, doing things His way, if we'll be the pace center, others are going to follow. Others are going to see that. And others are going to want to be involved. And I say that saying, it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or whether you're a woman. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. If you'll take some initiative to even rise to the occasion and do do something a little bit unexpected. The kind of thing where if somebody sees you stepping up and doing that, they're going to, whoa, he's really doing that. Hey, what she's doing? Hey, I can't help but take notice of that. Folks are going to see that. And they're going to want to follow suit. They're going to want to be involved in God's work. won't be long before we've got just a whole church full of folks who are busy. And all of us are involved in the work of God. I, I'm reminded of, of a young lady that I met several years ago. I was preaching in a gospel meeting. Preaching in, this was a smaller congregation, a good, good group, but a small congregation. And this young lady, she was a teenager, I think she was, she was like 13. She had just recently, uh, obeyed the gospel. And everybody, I mean to a person, everybody in that congregation at some point during the week asked me if I had observed that young lady. If I had seen her faith. They wanted to tell me something about that young lady. That young lady was very much, she was a Jonathan. A Jonathan Et, or whatever the female equivalent of Jonathan would be. This young lady in a smaller congregation in a rural area, in a place where it's very easy for folks to kind of get discouraged, in a congregation where they didn't have a lot of the same blessings that we do here, not just a big number, but where there's vibrancy and there's energy and, and young people and things like that. This young lady, she just saw work that needed to be done. So she set about doing it. And no, I'm not talking about, you know, wild and crazy things like trying to get up and preach or things like that. I'm just saying when she saw jobs that needed to be done, she did them. She said, hey, can I sign up to help clean the church building? Thirteen years old, I want to clean the church building. She was asking about, there was a couple of young kids there, and they didn't have Bible classes for those young ones because they just didn't think they had enough people. She said, hey, can I start a class teach those youngsters? You know, she probably still needed to be taught some things, but she saw a need that needed to be filled. I want to help teach those little children. She was always asking about, can I do this, can I do that? She was always bringing folks to services. If there was visitors in the assembly, chances are it's somebody that she had invited or she had brought personally. You know what? It affected everybody in that group. I'll never forget, there was a sister at the end of that week. She was just talking about this young lady. She came to me and she said, Josh, it's just been a marvel to watch this young girl just blossom and grow. She said, I've got to tell you, probably just the most poignant thing about all of it, is that she's made me want to be a better Christian. And this comes from a woman who was like, I think she was like up in her 50s. I see this young woman and she makes me want to do better. I'll tell you, Christian service, it's an awfully contagious disease. All it takes is just one person who has the desire and the determination and the drive and the want to to do what's right. And it can be the spark 
that sets off just a firestorm of good and great work for the Lord's kingdom. Could you be that spark? Don't you want to be a spark like that? I want to be. I want to be a Jonathan. And I want to be a Jonathan not because I, I want a bunch of glory, or because I want everybody looking at me and saying, wow, you know, look at him. Look at what he's doing. No, I want to be a Jonathan because there's work that needs to be done. There's work that needs to be done in this local church. And we need as many folks as we can possibly get to help in that work. You may be the spark. You may be the spark that sets this church just on fire to grow. Somebody says, well, we're already growing. Yeah, we've been growing. I hope you're not content to just stay right here where we are. We want to continue to grow. Not just in number, but in faith and in in our, our understanding of the Scriptures. You can help this local church reach just unprecedented heights. You may be the Jonathan that we need. I'll tell you, the very worst thing that you could do this morning is hear all of this stuff and look at Jonathan's example and nod your head and think, yeah, those are all true, those are all good points. And then to think that this lesson is for somebody else. Josh is talking to, to, to Brother Lazy over there. Her sister doesn't do anything over here. That's who he was talking to. I'm a good man. I'm a good woman. I'm a good Christian person. And, you know, that wasn't really for me. That was for somebody else. I've quoted it before, but I'll quote it again. All that is required for the triumph of evil is for good men or good women to do nothing. You don't have to go out and commit some big salacious sin in order to advance the devil's agenda. All you need to be is just a good Christian man or a good Christian woman sitting on the bench. Just don't do anything. You will help the devil's cause. This lesson this morning, it's for everybody. It's for you. It's for me. It is for Christians of every shape and every size. Being a part of God's kingdom means being an active part of that kingdom. In fact, I can encapsulate everything that I've said this morning from 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58. Where Paul says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Does that describe you? Are you, personally, individually, are you abounding? Are you abounding in the work of the Lord? Or is it possible that you're sitting on the bench? If you are sitting on the bench, then I want to implore you with the same words that the coach implored Ollie with in Hoosiers. Get up. Get off the bench. We need you. We need you here. We need you involved. Now perhaps there's somebody here this morning who has never even checked into the game because in fact you're not even on the Lord's team. It may be that I'm talking to some folks this morning, and I know that I'm talking to some folks this morning, who are not on God's team. Some people who are not Christians. You do understand that if you're not on the Lord's team, then whose team does that put you on? Yeah. It puts you on Satan's team. You don't want to be on Satan's team. appreciate so much Adam's prayer just a moment ago. The devil is hard at work. And he wants to blind us. And he wants to convince us that, well, we're, we're, we're doing okay. I, I'm okay as I am. Good person. Not doing all kinds of big, terrible, wicked kinds of stuff. I'm doing okay. It's a lie of the devil. Young people. Don't sit here and just think, well, you know, I, I'm a good person. And, 
you know, I don't want to think about death, but if something were to happen, I'm just pretty sure I'll go to heaven. Okay, well, that's for you to decide. I'm not going to tell you what to decide. But you need to think long and hard about where you stand with God. Are you on His team? Are you on His side? Have you submitted yourself to Him in the waters of baptism? That's how we can have assurance. Assurance doesn't come from saying, well, I, I, I just think I'd be okay. I, I think everything would be okay if I met the Lord today. That's not where assurance comes from. Assurance comes when we obey God and accept His gracious gift of salvation. Can we help you this morning to do just that? We're going to sing this song, Grace That Is Greater Than Our Sin. It is only by the grace of God that we are able to be saved and to be a part of God's team. Can we help you to get on God's team? Brother or sister, it may be that you've just kind of been waffling back and forth in your service to the Lord. You've not been fully committed. You've not been in the game. We're encouraging you to repent. And if we can encourage you in, in praying for you or saying things to you and putting our arms around you and just letting you know that we love you and we want to help you, and this is your invitation as well. Let's get on the Lord's side. Let's be serving Him today. Let's do that right now while we stand and while we sing.